This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This episode and next, we tackle one of the most intimidating poets in the American canon, Walt Whitman. He is the generally accepted and almost uncontested, really greatest contribution that America has made to the uh, great canon of world literature. Uh, the, the ones comprised of those that really intimidate, you know, like William Shakespeare <laughs> and James Joyce and Vladimir Nabokov and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Pablo Neruda and Ovid, Goethe, Nietzsche, Dante. Uh, man, that's impressive company. <laughs> People like that. Mm-hmm. Well, he does intimidate me. Honestly, he baffles me. The things he says seem easy to understand except I don't actually understand them. They're beautiful and interesting, but they're also uncomfortable. People love his writing and always have, but he's also very offensive, and he offends equally. The prudent and religious will be offended, but so will the secular and the intellectual. He will offend the socialist, but he will also offend the capitalist. Name your identity. He references it, and dismantles it, <laughs> primarily because he absolutely rejects group identities like we think of them today, even in terms of nations, but in every sense. To use his word, this is how he thinks. I am large. I contain multitudes. That's a paraphrase from my favorite selection of his work that we'll read today. Yeah, interesting. Well, for me... He's such a curious person in part because of the time that he emerged in. And that time was was then called at that point the American Experiment. And uh, I honestly think his perspective has a lot to do from this unique time period. And, uh, of course, this is not different than how I feel about all the writers. No, discuss, you always bring that up. <laughs> I do. But being born in 1819, you have to realize the United States is only 36 years older than Whitman. 
So his parents were present during the Revolutionary War, and they have a real respect for what people were trying to do and, and, and a respect for how unusual and fragile the democratic government actually was or it really is. Uh, we, at least we here in the United States, we live with a feeling that this country just always has been, that democracy just happens, and that elections are just things that have always happened. And most students today in this country don't even think about it. Democracy is the normal order in how things occur. Uh, you know, equality and liberty are virtues that everyone agrees are important by, you know, one definition or another. Uh, but none of this was reality and common understanding in 1819 in almost really any part of planet Earth. And most of the world looked at the United States with contempt. We were a bunch of non-educated hillbillies living in some weird cult-like schemata that wouldn't <laughs> stand the test of time and it would eventually destroy itself. And there was no culture in this country. By international standards, we had no great art. We had no history to speak of. We weren't writing great philosophies or conducting great music. And we had not produced a Voltaire or a Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And we had no Catherine the Great or Cosimo de' Medici sponsoring great artistic ventures. We were just a bunch of <laughs> hillbillies. Nothings. <clears throat> And so enters Walt Whitman, to which he looks at all those people and says, whoop de doo Europe, you are correct. We have none of that. And I celebrate that we do not. <laughs> oh, bold, very bold. <laughs> I want to begin with this famous poem by Whitman. Of course, it's from Leaves of Grass, Everything Is, which we'll introduce in a second. But if you're reading the Deathbed Edition, which is the one I have because it's the last one, uh, and again, we'll explain that again a little bit later. Uh, this poem is in the beginning in the part called Inscription. So let me read America's famous words on America. Or should I say, let me read Whitman's famous words on America. I hear America singing. The varied carols I hear. Those of mechanics, each one singing his as it should be, blithe and strong, the carpenter singing his, and he measures his plank or beam. The mason singing his, and he makes ready for work or leaves off work. The boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat. The deckhand singing on the steamboat deck. The shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench. The hatter singing as he stands. The woodcutter's song, the plowboy's on his way in the morning or at noon intermission or at sundown. The delicious singing of the mother or of the young wife at work, or of the girl sewing or washing, each singing what belongs to him or her and to none else. The day that belongs to the day, at night, the party of young fellows, robust, friendly, singing with open mouths their song, strong, melodious songs. <laughs> Gary, I want to hear your first thoughts uh, when you read this poem or heard me read the poem, but... Let me start by saying, notice how celebratory it is. America is singing carols. Those are happy songs, not dirges. And the song of the American is the song of hard work, not idleness, not vacation. It's not the Vienna Philharmonic, <laughs> which, by the way, was founded in 1842, so not very long before Leaves of Grass was written. But America was not building art as commonly understood. 
We were building lives, but they were free lives, lives of ownership where people lived with the choices they made, but they got to make their own choices. This is very different than anywhere else. Places that were more cultured or more sophisticated or more idealized. We don't have serfs working for great lords or ladies. We don't even have great lords or ladies. We don't have jet setters, so to speak, or people of privilege or high cultural standing. In America, we work hard, but we work for ourselves and everyone does it. That's something we're proud of. There's no shame in labor. There's the song in that. And this is Whitman. <laughs> well, what I find very interesting in my first impressions about all this is it is about individualism. And I have to point out, you can never, ever overemphasize how badly Americans are trying to distance themselves from the feudal ideas of Europe. It was everywhere in the culture. So this is very much about homestead. It's about individualism. It's about taking responsibility to create things you couldn't do in, uh, in feudal Europe and about creating your own little corner of the world. And this is exactly the idea that Alexis de Tocqueville referenced in his really important work, Democracy in America, which you should read if you have an history interest. Um, as a Frenchman touring the United States, he was totally surprised and impressed with this very thing that Whitman is talking about. Uh, the poem is a complete refutation of the English feudal system, and that's what Northerners loved about it. In the South, and what was so offensive to Whitman when he spent time in New Orleans, was that they were trying to re- recreate that um, hierarchical system where some people outrank others to the point of claiming they weren't even human, and that to Whitman was the complete opposite of what the entire American experiment was about. Well, his parents were clearly on Team America. He had one brother that was named George Washington Whitman and another named Thomas Jefferson Whitman and a third named Andrew Jackson Whitman. <laughs> oh, uh, we haven't had a President Walt that I know of. No. Well, uh, that is a statement. I mean, this unique time in history in which he lived allowed Whitman to see great contrasts in America. He saw democracy and success found in personal effort. He saw vast amounts of unpolluted natural beauty, but he also saw evil uh, at its most deranged and pain and loneliness really at its most intense. We have to remember that his parents lived through the Revolutionary War, but he lived during the treacherous Civil War. Uh, And his perspective and life experience is very different. I mean, he admired the expanse of the West. He loved the natural beauty of this continent. But he also was horrified and despised to its core uh, about the national plague that has defined and still defines so much of American history. And that is the legacy of slavery. Uh, His views on such, by the way, got him fired by more than one employer. (laughs) Uh, At this time, newspapers were owned and operated by political parties. And he was always slipping in his own views that the political operatives didn't like. So he got fired. Well, I guess some things never change. (laughs) But one thing that baffles and almost offends most academics is Whitman's absolute nothing of an academic background. I mean, his parents were basically illiterate. His family was excessively large, chaotic. Today, we would call it dysfunctional. He had one sibling that actually had to be committed to an insane asylum. And his formal education was completely inadequate because his father sent him out to work. 
It's so ironic that the greatest American poet had no formal tutelage. He just scrounged up for himself what he wanted to learn, really self-taught through libraries and basically attending operas. Uh, He didn't have any other options. His father was basically a financial failure. He was a carpenter by trade, but he owned a little land. He speculated in real estate after they moved to Brooklyn. That didn't go well, and he ended up losing everything. Wow. And, of course, that's the problem with the land of opportunity, you know? (laughs) Yes. Uh, You're kind of out there on your own to make it or break it. And uh, people were very aware of this and actually promoted it a lot. Uh, There was no guarantee at all that America would even survive as a country. It was still an experiment. Uh, No one else was living like this, and we can't emphasize that enough. Europeans had monarchies. South American countries were colonies. Um, Our neighbors to the east were living in empires. Only this little backward nation in a corner of North America was alone in trying to do this really weird thing, this experiment in self-rule. Well, and Whitman loved that. He really did. He loved the land. He loved the cities. He loved the people. He spent the first 36 years of his life walking around and observing life, most of it in New York City and Long Island, which at that time obviously was not a suburb. (laughs) But he loved the libraries, and he spent tons of time reading, and he loved music, especially opera, which we'll notice had a strong influence on how he writes. He loved learning and listening and observing, and that is what he wrote about. I heard one lecturer say that he was the first non-blind poet, which I thought was weird. That's why I can remember it. But what the professor meant was that most poets are writing about their inner life, their imagination. Think, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and The Raven. That's all stuff that he had dreamed up. But Whitman, in many cases, was basically transcribing things that he was seeing and hearing in urban life. This was different. He would catalog it. That's the word that we use to talk about how he writes. Uh, He just described things, one thing after another, that he saw in these poems. He would make long lists of details in very, very long sentences, kind of like you heard me read up Mm -hmm. at the top. I also want to point out that it was this desire to self-educate that led him like many of his day, to be influenced and challenged by the great Ralph Waldo Emerson. I mean, we'll do an entire episode or more uh, than one on him. But Emerson's non-conventional ideas about nature and the soul and our interconnectedness, uh, although ideas that were commonly accepted in the Far East were new really on this continent and the beginning of what we would call the Romantic movement. True. And in 1855, something great happened. Whitman self-published the book Leaves of Grass. The first version, of which there will be many, uh, was only 95 pages. That's compared to the deathbed one, which had 415. That's the copy I have. There was no author's name on the title. Instead, on the first page, there was an image of a man, him, (laughs) in laborer's clothes. Whitman only reveals that he's the author through one of the first unnamed poems, calling himself Whitman, an American, one of the roughs, a cosmos. Hmm. (laughs) Well, you have to look up the word cosmos in the dictionary, even if you do know what it means, just to see what's he talking about. Well, of course we know that cosmos is a 
complex, orderly, self-inclusive system. Think science. Uh, So that in and of itself makes it interesting to call him. But it's also a Greek word and a biblical word, which is, I think, how Whitman probably knew it. It's used in the New Testament to mean the universe or the creation as a whole. And that's how Whitman defines himself in his poem, Song of Myself. And the context of who he wants us to understand about who he is, about his work, and who we are as individuals. We, too, for Whitman, are cosmos. Well, it didn't start out very cosmic, that's for sure. Um, (laughs) It's a miracle Leaves of Grass came to be read by anyone. He self-published it, literally typesetting it himself. He printed 795 copies and sold almost none of them. Oh, don't you wish you had one of those originals now, though? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Well, uh, lots of people do, and in case you're in the market, uh, there are 200 that are still around in 2014. One sold at Christie's auction for, not your auction, but the the famous (laughs) auction. Yes, I know. $305,000. I mean, it's so ironic. Whitman struggled financially until the day he died and celebrated working people and everything he wrote. So what do you think he would think of that, Christy? Oh, I have zero doubt. He would have loved that. Totally. Uh, He'd love the money, but he would love the idea of it. Beyond being the book's publisher, he was also the book's publicist. Uh, Those unsold copies, he sent them, a lot of them, to leading poets of the day, trying, poor thing, to drum up good reviews. Whittier was said to have thrown his copy into the fire because he was so offended and outraged from the homoerotic imagery. It was just more than he could handle. But Ralph Waldo Emerson saw it, and when he saw it, he wrote Whitman back an amazing letter of encouragement. Let me quote Emerson. I am not blind to the worth of the wonderful gift of leaves of grass. I find it the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. And, of course, to this day, many world-class literary scholars agree with Emerson. Yeah, how do you feel Whitman? when you get a letter like that from Ralph Waldo <laughs> oh Emerson? Gosh. You know, what I find humorous about Whitman is that he wrote glowing reviews of his book himself um, secretly, and he published them as if they were written by other people. I know. He was a big self-promoter, but... He was working the influencer thing way back before, you know, people did that. When he reprinted the book in 1865, the next year, uh, he put that in, except he didn't get Emerson's permission to do so. He put Emerson's words, and I quote, I greet you at the beginning of a great career on the spine of the book, and he published the entire letter with a long reply addressing it to Dear Master. I don't think I have to tell you, Emerson uh, was not happy and did not receive this well. Well, you know, I can see that as being slightly presumptuous. Well, of course it was, but I would be tempted to do it as well. He really admired Emerson. In fact, this is what he said about Emerson's influence on his writing. I was simmering, simmering, simmering. Emerson brought me to a boil. Uh, I want us to read the very first part of Song of Myself, which is the first poem. I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. 
I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood, formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same and their parents the same. I, now 37 years old in perfect health, begin hoping to cease not till death. Creeds and schools in abeyance, retiring back a while, sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard, nature without check, with original energy. And of course, those might be some of the most famous words that people know. But this is what I mean when I say it seems like it's simple to understand, except you can read this a hundred times and still be slightly confused at what he is trying to say. Uh, We call this ambiguous. Uh, He makes you, as a reader, he forces you, really, to put your own interpretation, to put yourself into the lines to make it meaningful. True. And if you take it at face value, just superficially, um, it may seem that this is a narcissist celebrating (laughs) egotism, but it clearly doesn't. Uh, It also could be misunderstood to mean he celebrates idleness and laziness, but that doesn't seem to be right either. Exactly. And I love these first lines. First of all, they're so iconic. One thing Whitman is known for, besides the cataloging, which I mentioned when we were talking about I Hear America Singing, is this thing today that we call free verse. Whitman is often given credit for inventing the concept, although I know that's kind of debatable. But what is obvious is that there is no rhyme or meter of any kind, and there isn't supposed to be. He doesn't want anything to rhyme. Instead, he wants to write in these really long sentences. Every stanza is a single sentence, and he is going to do that throughout the entire poem. Whitman felt that you couldn't get your idea out if you were trying to fit it into this short little phrase of iambic tetrameter, like Whittier, the guy who didn't like his stuff, was writing. (laughs) Threw his book in the (laughs) fire. Yeah. Whitman wanted, above all else, to create a real sense of intimacy between himself and the person reading. And he wanted to make sure you could follow his idea and contract from idea to idea. He got this idea, by the way, from two places. First of all, he got got it from a book that he'd been familiar with since his childhood, the King James Version of the Bible. You see this kind of writing in the book of Psalms or even uh, in Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. But he also got the idea from the opera. Because if you think about the opera, and I hadn't thought about this till I started thinking about Walt Whitman, they do have long phrases, you know, like figaro, 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 you know, all the, but that's, you know, Italian. Was that your audition <laughs> for operatic singing? Well, you know, I, I do enjoy the opera. I haven't always, to be honest. A few years ago, a good friend of mine, I've mentioned her before, Amy Nolet, she teaches AP literature here in Memphis. She coerced me to attend. She's an accomplished musician and taught me to admire it. And we would go every year until COVID hit, but but back to Whitman. So one of the first things that Whitman is famous for today was the cataloging. Then we have this concept of free verse, which was innovative and a bigger deal than that. But the biggest deal of all were the ideas that he's putting out there. Let's listen to this. I celebrate myself, not because I'm so important, not because I have all this amazing heritage or skill or anything. I celebrate myself because I have an essence that is 100% unique to me. 
Read it again. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. It's not an accident that he throws in there this scientific language. And this is where he will offend the capitalist or the competitive side of it. He's going to make this bold assertion in this poetic way to say, What? You think you're that much better than me? You are made of the exact same material that I'm made of. We're both made of atoms. Science teaches us that. And every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Well, one of the great themes of early America that he's really echoing is something that was called leveling, the leveling of society. Uh, and that was very, very uh, deep in the psyche of people. And it's very much an important part of democracy. So, uh, you know, in some sense, uh, it's the I'm OK, you're OK attitude, but taking it up a notch. I celebrate myself. You celebrate yourself. For sure. And something, you know, we all give lip service today. But nobody actually really believes. I have a creative writing assignment that I ask my students to do every year. We take another Whitman poem called There Was a Child Went Forth that talks about identity and physical options and the places that influence who you are. It's a wonderful poem. Anyway, I ask my students to write a poem using Whitman's style and technique about their lives. I tell them we're going to read them in small groups. And if they like what they wrote and feel comfortable, we're going to print them out and put them on the doorway. And at first, everyone's really resistant to this. They hate it. First, because it's writing, honestly. Secondly, because it's poetry. But mostly because they don't want their lives sprawled on the hallway of the school. I had a sweet, darling child, actually a quiet girl. She raised her hand and literally said, I can't do this. All I do is go to school and work. And then she said this. There's nothing interesting about my life. <laughs> well, she seems to have missed Walt Whitman's point altogether. And uh, she didn't want to celebrate herself. And she's exactly the kind of person Whitman loves celebrating. That's it, exactly. And, you know, lots of my kids are like that. They work at Sonic. They work at Chick-fil-A. They work at the mall. They mow lawns. But in her case, it turns out, she found out she's more interesting than she thought and her poem is on my wall right now. I should take a picture. I think I will and post it on our website so you can see how many students wanted to put their uninteresting lives and celebrate them on the wall. I'm, I'm proud of them, not just because they wrote nice poems, but because they are hardworking kinds of kids. And I think one of the funniest outcomes of that is that <laughs> they think they are poets now. <laughs> That they have mastered when really they've learned just enough to be dangerous. Well, Whitman would say that's all you need. <laughs> well, I will say that the the next phrase leads us to think that Whitman is a lazy person. I mean, he extols the virtue of loafing. Uh, but, of course, what I know about his biography, which we'll get more into next week when we talk about his experiences in the Civil War and all that, that Whitman was the very opposite of lazy. He was an extremely physical hard worker. True. Let's review those lines so we know what you're talking about. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. When he says, I loaf and invite my soul, he's getting into the philosopher's side of himself. That is so complex, and we really don't have time to get into all that today. But it's that old idea of contemplating. 
Today, we may modernize the idea by using the word mindfulness. And I have to admit, I'm not very good <laughs> at it. But he believes in mindfulness, although he didn't know we'd renamed it. Loaf was his concept for that, his word for that. Chill out, turn off your phone, turn off your TV, turn off the computer. Invite your soul into yourself. Stop and observe a spear of grass. Just look at it. Let your mind go there. Let it focus on something small. It's the kind of thing yoga instructors keep telling us to do, and we rarely heed, but we all know we probably should. Exactly. I mean, attention and silence. Uh, he thinks they're indispensable to a sane existence and uh, two things that we may not be that good at. And then we get to these last two sentences in the opening little poem, and I'll read those. My tongue, every atom of my blood formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same and their parents the same, I... Now, 37 years old and perfect health began hoping to cease not till death. Creeds and schools in abeyance, retiring back a while sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard, nature without check, with original energy. There's a lot to say, but he's going to say, I'm proud to be from this place. My parents are from this place. I'm 37. That's not young. He's not a child prodigy. He's writing his first book, kind of late in life relatively, and he knows that. But he says, I'm in good health, and I begin. And I'm not going to stop until death. I'm going to live well all the way to the end. I'm not going to give up on myself ever. And that is where you can see why he's inspiring. And uh, uh, to get back to this idea of origins, you know, being an American today is something lots of people are proud of, although it is very American to trash <laughs> our own country. But that's part of our national uh, ethos. But uh, even those same people proudly display their passport in foreign countries and enjoy all the privileges that come with it. But uh, America is a powerful country and a rich country. At that time, it was a new country, and new countries don't have the safety of heritage. And sometimes the people who come from them have trouble taking pride in that heritage. Well, exactly. I know what you're talking about. Uh, we had a listener who connected with us through our Instagram page, and he showed us some beautiful pictures that he had taken. They were amazing, and they were his art. They were mountains, breathtakingly gorgeous. He had framed them with a beautiful sense of style. I messaged him back and, and told him what we thought of his art, and we went back and forth. And I finally asked him, where are you from? But he wouldn't tell me. He said he was from Central Asia. Eventually, I gathered that it was probably one of the new countries formed out of what used to be called uh, the USSR. I'm not saying he was ashamed of where he was from. I didn't get that sense. But he seemed intimidated because we were from America, a place that seemed so far away and maybe idealized from something that he'd seen in the media. Whitman would tell this young man, you're from a wonderful place. You have a wonderful heritage, Adams, just like all of us. Accept it and celebrate it. Well, because as I read onward, he seems to imply uh, this is the attitude that breeds great things and, you know, that breeds beautiful things. But if it doesn't, that's okay as well. Keep going <laughs> all the way till death. 
uh, compete not with others, but with yourself. And uh, as he goes to self-publish the same book eight more times until he does. <laughs> yes, he was competitive with himself. Uh, I want to read the last sentence again of that opening because he sets up a lot of the rest of his writings and kind of gives us a little warning about what's to come. Creeds and schools in abeyance, retiring back a while, sufficed at what they are but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard nature without check with original energy. Again, that language seems simple, but at the same time, I have to work really hard at getting to what he's saying. Uh, But I do have an interpretation. I think what he's saying is put away your school learning and your religious training just for a minute Sit back, because I'm going to say I want to say some really hard things. I think that's what he means when he says hazard. But they're not mean. They're natural. It's about the energy of being alive. It's the beauty of being you, of being a physical body, of being an interconnected spirit with connections to other people and part of a physical space. And, of course, um, it's that celebration of the physical body that kept getting him censored. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. Even Ralph Waldo Emerson later, when he was reproducing his book, begged Whitman to self-censor or what was really kind of thinly veiled homoerotic passages. But he just wouldn't. Um, he didn't see them as erotic. He didn't even see sex like that. I mean, for him, sexuality in the physical body had a self-evident important place in our lives and had to be brought out in the open uh, in order for it not to be a hazard. And again, it kind of was a hazard, and he lost a really good job in Washington <laughs> at one point because yeah. his boss found a copy of Leaves of Grass in his desk and felt that it was obscene. Poor guy. I want to talk about the title, Leaves of Grass, and what that even means. I mentioned that Whitman was famous for his style and his innovative literary technique, and he's been increasingly praised for some of the innovative ideas about the body, the self-conscious. Actually, he was one of the first American poets to ever write about consciousness. The other one, by the way, was Emily Dickinson. But probably the thing I like the best about Whitman, and this is me personally, but I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is he has this really uh, uncanny ability to capture a beautiful and relatable and wonderful metaphor. He could just say things in an understandable way that was pretty. And that, to me, is what poetry is about. Uh, The phrase in this title, leaves of grass, it means something. First, let's read the part of Song of Myself that talks about grass. I'd ask you to read all of it, but it's too long. Song of Myself number six. So let's just read a little bit of it. A child said, what is the grass, fetching it to me with full hands? How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white, 
Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff, I give them the same. I receive them the same. And now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. When Whitman loafs around and stares at grass, he sees a picture of America or a picture really of any democracy, any group of people that understand that they are one people of which America was the example he knew, but it's not exclusionary by any means. He says, look, Every single blade of grass is totally different, and yet in some sense it's the same. He calls it a uniform hieroglyphic. What an interesting turn of phrase. It's, and I use his words here, black folks as among white, Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff. I give to me the same. I receive them the same. For Whitman, the picture of America or the best metaphor of America was not a melting pot or, you know, quilts or things that people say, but it was a field of grass. If we look at it, we see hopeful green woven stuff, the handkerchief of the Lord. But if we look at it closely, we're all so different. And both things are truly beautiful. It's a paradox. He goes on to say, it's from the land. It's made up of the dust that is made up of the people of the land. I know this is going to get philosophical, and you can take it as far as or as deep as you want to plunge to go there. Uh, but you don't have to get so deep or think esoterically if you don't want to. You can just lay on the grass, smell it, enjoy it, loaf on it. To use his words. I think that would uh, be the point he was trying to make. And you know what I like about that entire image and about Whitman's entire philosophy? He absolutely spoke of diversity, but he did not celebrate diversity, not like we would think of doing today. He celebrates unity. And that's why this metaphor is the title. I mean, Whitman had a very refined understanding of how easy we can rip each other apart. And there is not more divisive times in American history than the 1850s and, of course, the 1860s, which are the war years that he lived through. Uh, He lived through the most divided time in American history, and he could see it coming even in 1855, as many people could. But during his lifetime, uh, he would see... 2.5% of America's population die, killing each other. Uh, You know, that's 750,000 people. If we want to compare to the population of America today, that would mean Civil War casualties would amount to about 7 million people. That's how massive that is. Uh, Next week, we'll see how much he admired Lincoln and what he stood for. But as he understood the American experiment... Uh, He believed in admiring differences and loving them, but identifying as a single group first and foremost. And the dominant image here is of a single landscape. You know, it's beautiful. It's united across time and space, respecting the past and, you know, not judging the past or condemning it and allowing ourselves to spring from it renewed and refreshed. And I think that's where the universal appeal comes from. If Whitman was just about American patriotism, maybe we'd like him in this country, in America, but it would feel propagandistic. But we don't. His ideals are universal and apply to any group of people anywhere. And he's not afraid to admit that some of the things that he says may seem self-contradictory. The first time I ever read Whitman, I was in college. I went to school studying political science, but my junior year, I decided I didn't want to do that anymore, and I switched to being an English major. 
Well, this meant I had to take a lot of classes at the same time that required a lot of intense reading. I read so much that they all ran together. My grades weren't what they should be, and I wasn't uh, in a healthy place, really. All that reading, not a whole lot stood out. But Whitman actually did. This little poem did. The part that I want to finish with. I underlined it. I kept it. I still have the trade book that I purchased at the time. Uh, In this little section, Whitman is talking in an intimate way to his readers, and he gets real personal. It's in the second person. At that time in my life, college for everyone was very chaotic. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, For me, my mother had recently passed away. I had little idea about what my future was going to look like. I had just changed majors, changed directions at the last moment. And these famous words just stood out. Will you read them? The past and present wilt, I have filled them, emptied them, and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. Listener up there, what have you to confide to me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly. No one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I concentrate to hoard them that are nigh. I wait on the door slab. Who has done his day's work? Who will soonest be through with his supper? Who wishes to walk with me? Will you speak before I am gone? Will you prove already too late? So, what did that mean to you, Christy? <laughs> Honestly, I really have no idea. <laughs> I think I the line that I liked is the one that everybody likes. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. <laughs> you can't argue with that, can you? It just made me feel better because I knew I was full of inconsistencies. And Whitman just seemed to say, well, of course you are. Everyone is. To understand that is just to be honest. Let it go. Concentrate on what is near, what you're doing today, supper, that sort of thing. If you're successful, that's great. If you're a failure, what difference does it make? (laughs) We're all the same atoms. We're all just leaves of grass. And that just kind of made me feel okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess that would probably have made him happy. The bard of democracy, uh, also known as the good gray poet, speaking across time and space about what it means to be a human and to be a, a leaf of grass. So... Thanks for listening. Uh, Next episode, we will delve a little more into Whitman's adult life and read some of his most famous poems. Uh, That would be the tributes to Abraham Lincoln. And we'll finish our discussion of this amazing American. As always, please share about us with a friend or a colleague. Push out an episode on your social media feed. Text an episode to a friend. Connect with us on our social media at howtolovelitpodcast.com or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn. If you're a teacher, visit our website for teaching materials that provide ideas of scaffolding for using our products as instructional pieces in your classroom. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.